Belt Law, Society, Scholarship, and Fandom. Welcome to Semantic Shenanigans. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Semantic Shenanigans show number 15. As always, I am Janet Gershon-Siegel, and with me from an undisclosed location from somewhere within the heart of this great nation is my co-host, Janet Gilkison. Yay! Yay! What's up? <laughs> Not much. I'm, uh, I'm recording a podcast. How about you? Oh, what a coincidence. So am I. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> serendipity how exciting it is and it's raining so the snow's gone for the moment and um i could see where the corn would normally go <laughs> see there there you go we have we just have dirty um you know dirty patches of snow on uh on kind of you know bare ground so it's very uh very sleety outside but we're, we're actually it's kind of warm here today very weird so i this means i'm probably going to get some horrible cold from it Oh, that awesome. sucks. Oh, oh, always the optimist here. So yes, I'm, I'm the, I'm the voice of doom. Uh, so, uh, so what's been shaking in your life? Well, earlier this month, I did the uh, oral defense of my preliminary exams. So just to kind of refresh everybody's memory, kind of like the essay test from hell. I had a week to write four very long essays on various aspects. Um, of my my discipline and my possible uh, dissertation, so I had passed the written's after last, and I finally had the oral defense, which was interesting and fun because between uh, weather, illness, and um, a committee member being on sabbatical, I had to Skype in three out of four committee members, so that was interesting. Uh, mm. But we made it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Right now, um, I'm just working on the proposal phase uh, to get ready for my dissertation. And I'm also chunking away at a paper I'm going to be presenting at uh, the Popular Culture Association's National Conference uh, on the X-Files. Oh, terrific. Uh, anything, what, what specifically on the X-Files? Um, it's, well, um... It, I'm still writing it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. Well, then, you know, as you know. But but it, it's kind of conceptually, like, I, I'm kind of playing with this idea of the X-Files, uh, the, the tagline, the truth is out there, uh, hmm. in this age of uh, post-truth and alternative facts, and kind of like how the show is navigating our day and age. How oh, interesting. Well, yeah, it, 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 you know, and that's just such a wonderful tagline because it's not only that the truth is out there, that, that it's, you know, perhaps alien or, or it's off of this world, but also, you know, the colloquial uh, meaning of the phrase out there, you know, that, that, that it's wild, that it's, that it's crazy, that it's something that you will find hard to believe. Yeah, and I think that that multi-layeredness uh, of the X Files, both um, you know, in in that particular tagline and and just the various uh, types of subject matter that the show deals with, is part of it bring quality and and people love it enough that all these years later there is a season, there is a season eleven, and uh, what a coincidence we're going to talk about season eleven a little bit. Oh. <gasps> Woohoo! All right. So, yeah, um, we're uh, 
There's what do you got going on, Janet? (laughs) Everything I have going on is writing, it seems. Uh, I have written a short story every day in January so far. Woohoo! Everything from like little little things that were like you know 250 words long or whatever, and one of them was I think about 4,400. Uh, but for the most part, they've been under 2000 words. They've been pretty short and, uh, just sort of little scenes of this and that, uh, mostly science fiction, actually a lot of, um, first contact stories, because those are, those, those I, I seem to be able to reel off really quickly. And, uh, what I'm probably going to try to do with the better ones is see if I can get some of them into anthologies and, uh, continue to, uh, to expand my portfolio. Uh, the other thing is I'm going to be looking to put together a beta reading team next month, uh, for people who might be interested in reading short stuff or long stuff in order to try to give, you know, give me some perspective on whether any of this stuff is working or not, because yeah, it's lovely to get accolades online in, in the open, but when it's behind, you know, metaphorical closed doors, if you tell me that this scene isn't working or I can't tell the difference between these two characters or why is this, why is this chapter here? That's extremely good feedback for me. And that's what I need to know because if I send this stuff out to, uh, uh, you know, to publishers and that those sort of, uh, structural massive problems are not addressed, then I get shot down and I don't know why. And it's much better if somebody tells me, you know, I mean, beta reading is vital anyway, but uh, what I, what I'm, attempting to do what I really want to do this year is give it more structure and a little more accountability because I do have people who I rely on for beta reading, but they tend to sort of come and go. And sometimes it is months before I hear back on maybe 3000 words worth of stuff. And, you know, recognize that that every page is approximately 500 words. So if it's 3000 words that I'm talking about, you know, what is that? six pages. It's really not a lot of, um, of reading. And this shouldn't be taking somebody 90 days to read. This should be taking somebody 60 minutes to read and then reel off, you know, whatever their, their objections are. So, you know, it should be 90, you know, 90 minutes and not 90 days. And while, you know, I, I, I absolutely recognize that, that, uh, that I'm, you know, not really paying these people except, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to send them, uh, you know, autograph copies or whatever. And, and, and of, of course they're getting the, um, you know, the first look at stuff, which is, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. So, so I recognize that I can't really push people. And that's also why sometimes these things take forever because I'm not pushing, but at the same time, people, if you say you're going to pay to read, please pay to read, please do what you said you were going to do. I'm off my soapbox now. That, that That's okay. And, you know, it just occurred to me too, that that's kind of like one of the biggest differences between know, fan writing and professional writing and, and why, number one, a lot of fan writers don't make the transition from one world to the other because it, it's two totally different kinds of audiences. And, and we've talked about this on the show before, you know, you did fanfic before and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, your, your, your readership there just kind of wants more of the same for you. They don't want you to do different stuff. But then also, like, trying to get these people... Who like helped you as beta readers? It's like yeah, they they're they're volunteers and and deal with all of the usual stuff when you're at other people's mercy. I mean, we 
one film that I worked on a few years ago, we had no budget. So almost all of our labor was voluntary right down to the acting talent. So you are really at people's mercy when you're not paying them. Um, so, yeah. you know, um, if, if it takes them three months, it takes them three months. And there's really not a lot you can do about that. And then also, you know, because they're doing it for free, you know, their, their motivations are different. Like they don't have a paycheck Right. And, you know, maybe they're only doing it because they want the first crack at whatever it is that you have to do now because they have a particular passion for, for editorial work. Yeah, I, I think that there's there's folks who are out there who really just want to see the first cut of stuff because, you know, that's that's kind of exciting, you know, to see the creative process, particularly if you're not used to it. Um, I mean, like I like I have people from from high school who might might volunteer for this. I don't really know yet. And if they do, then I have to kind of rein them in because I don't want this to be the cheering section. You know, I mean, at the same time, I'm, you know, I, I, this is, it's my baby. You know, I, I, you know, I'm sensitive. I've got feelings and they get hurt and uh, I don't want anybody tearing me a new one, but, uh, you know, and I want the, so I want criticism to be constructive. You know, like I said, if you, if you can't tell the difference between two characters, I want to hear it, but I don't want to hear, uh, this sucks. I hate it. You should uh, stop writing and, you know, and, and go jump off the shortest pier, you know, that you find it's, uh, you know, of course, I don't want to hear that. So I, I, I know that there are people also who they want very much to be nice, or they think that that's going to sustain the relationship better if they're gentle and nice about things. And being nice and, you know, being, uh, you know, being sensitive about it, I think is kind of one thing if you're just, you know, you're trying to soften the blow and saying, okay, well, yeah, I couldn't tell the difference to you these two characters but i think they've got potential you know and here's how i think they could be they could be changed you know and you can of course you know take take this uh criticism or not and you know and do what i'm suggesting or not that's one thing versus um you know telling me everything is groovy and it's not yeah you know you you don't it- it, it's unhelpful to like have surround yourself with those people who are gonna uh, t- tell you whatever it is they think that you want to hear. That's not a beta reader. That's a cheer. Um, you know, but again, you know, the, the the teardown doesn't work either. And I kind of have problems in those beta readers. Um, whether I'm the beta reader or I'm getting beta read because I have such a different process and approach to that um, because I was, you know, I worked in my alma mater's writing center for several years. I took a class on how to be a a peer tutor. And then I went on as a master's student. um, One of my, my assistantship assignments was to be consultant in the center. And so there we're trained to leave authors in control of their own paper. So, you know, I make suggestions, I do noticings, I ask questions, um, I do point out things like you spelled this wrong or, you know, that kind of thing, or um, I'm not really sure what you mean. But what I really hate is getting back um, a, a piece of my writing with all kinds of track changes markup where, like, people have actually gone in and changed things for me. I, I dislike that and I will not do that to other people. 
Yeah, I mean, I I have a professional editor for stuff like that. You know, if I'm if I'm misspelling the word exaggerated, and believe me, that 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 that's one word that I'm like I like constantly misspell uh, because I swear it changes from double G to double R uh, overnight when I'm not looking. Uh, but uh, it, you know, that's that's what that's her job, and I pay her. You know, she's a professional, and I'm happy to pay her for that. But uh, yeah, that, that's 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 what I don't want. I I don't want the um, you know this this uh, you, you know I can I I know gram, grammar rules. You know, I know when something's passive voice, and, and maybe I, it's passive voice for a reason. I mean, their their passive voice isn't incorrect. It's just you know when you use it, you know you, you can use it properly. So I, yeah, I don't want to see that. Uh, wait, wait. Although, if somebody says to me, this character was left-handed in Chapter 5, and now in Chapter 17, he's right-handed, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, we, we see this in academia a lot, too, you know, um, and, and I've even gotten these papers. Uh, you know, people uh, will go after, like, the small editorial stuff, like spelling, grammar, and, and that kind of thing, but what they haven't really given attention to is the rest of the paper or is the rest of the story doing what it's supposed to? And if it's not doing what it's supposed to, then telling me I spelled chartreuse wrong is of the least of my problems right now. And we shouldn't be talking about that. Yeah, exactly. And, and what I've also found is that there's a definite qualitative difference between people who, uh, for the longer pieces, for people who read little dribs and drabs over a long period of time versus somebody who just reads the whole thing at once. Because I had done that with Real Hub of the Universe. And uh, uh, for people who are reading it in dribs and drabs, you know, I, you know, I, I change things accordingly as I was, you know, as people suggested, or I rejected their suggestions. And uh, then this woman read the whole thing through and she said, you need to cut down on the, the number of times you say all right because everybody says it and part of the reason is because this takes place in Victorian era and not a lot of people would say okay particularly people from outside the United States but I did a you know I did a find on that and I found I had done that I don't know God knows lots and lots of times so that was extremely helpful feedback and it was something that she noticed because she read all hundred some out of some odd thousand words in one shot versus somebody reading you know three thousand words over the course of ninety days. Yeah, yeah, it is a difference, and I know for myself when I try to approach things, I do try to do a one sitting thing, unless it's like physically impossible. Like if we're talking, you know, a a, a multi chaptered book, you know, just just with my schedule, it's not necessarily possible. But I do try to read as much of it as I can in one sitting so I can notice patterns like that. Because if you do it in tiny little pieces, um, it, it's just like when you binge watch a show that's normally on weekly. Mm-hmm. And certain things that you notice that you didn't notice before because you had to wait a whole week and sometimes a whole summer in between um, for, for things to happen, it, it doesn't hit you. But you know, like, like I think when binge watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, I, I noticed. Um, I think it was Riker maybe uh, saying "What the hell?" a lot, like a <laughs> lot, and and so it would just kind of, you know, th- these things would come up because you know the passage of time in between. Don't think about it; it doesn't linger with you. But when you just saw it you know, in another episode, a half an hour, forty-five minutes ago, and, and then you see it a half hour, forty-five minutes later, when when you when the next one's gotten started, um, the, the things themselves apparent. 
Yeah, you, you, you start to, uh, you definitely spot repetition. And, uh, and that was extremely helpful. You know, that, w- that was just so helpful for me. And I, and I actually went back in a few other things that I've written and said, oh my God, I, I do this everywhere. Uh, because I, I already do that with the word that. I try, I try to do like, you know, go through and find all the places where I've used that. You know, again, these are, these are all perfectly good words. It's just that um, when you see a lot of them, it means you're not using other idiomatic phrases. Uh, and you could use others. And, you know, there's ways, that, you know, obviously that we can vary uh, our, um, you know, our verbiage that makes things more interesting. And, um, and also some, uh, the way, the way dialogue goes, you know, educated people are going to speak one way, uneducated people will speak another way. People who are not native speakers will speak a third way. And, uh, you know, as, 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 as writers, we have to, we have to take these things into consideration. And if we're using the exact same idiomatic expressions, whether it's the, um, uh, the groom at the stable who uh, who never finished grade school uh, versus the uh, Harvard-educated son of the wealthiest person in the city versus the inside um, uh, uh, servants. Uh, that's you know that that's that doesn't work. Yeah, and at the same time, you got to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing the other way too to too much purple prose. Because uh, one of the things that I see a lot in student work, particularly, is that they they will kind of overcomplicate the things that they say mm-hmm. because they're trying to sound smart, or because their tenth grade English teacher told them before <laughs> that they were being too repetitive and they needed to quote change it up. And here I am doing the these podcast air quotes that you can't see <laughs> again, because that's got to happen probably at least once per show. Although I think I got away without doing it last. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, w- when you go through this and, and then you kind of have to redirect them back to the idea that, you know, maybe the direct approach and just saying things, you know, just, just say what it is, is kind of the better way to go. Uh, just like some, you know, I've, I've seen panels with professional authors say, you know, sometimes you just need to say said. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it, it, this actually takes me back to when I was practicing law, because uh, I handled construction cases a lot. And uh, here we are, we're lawyers, we've got Juris doctorates, you know, which is basically the equivalent of a master's degree or an MBA, and uh, we're talking to people very often who don't, who were not born in the United States, and very often who barely made it through high school if they did at all. And uh, I would see countless lawyers. Oh God, you just want to strangle these people who would say over and over again, prior to and subsequent to. And I learned, I think, my first week practicing law. No, you say before and after. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've noticed, too, since I've started doing a lot more academic writing, um, my go-to word seems to be thus, and I need to stop that. <laughs> I noticed so, that after rereading my, my written prelims, which, you know, that, that kind of like wasn't really a thing that they were that they really ding you for, at least not at my school, because they know that you have only one week to do a lot of writing. And of course, you're not going to be able to go through your usual writing process under those mm. circumstances. So, you know, no, nobody busted my chops for it. But just going through it now, trying to mine it for things for my proposal, I, I it sometimes it's cringeworthy. 
<laughs> you need to to switch it up with nevertheless. That's a great that's a great long word, but it also sounds very purple pro- prosy. Um, uh, or sometimes just so. <laughs> so. So tell me about <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So um so so shall we dive into a topic? Yeah, I I, I, I think our language lesson for the day is, is about <laughs> Austin. <laughs> Thus and but, so we are going to move on. But hey, you learn stuff on this show. <laughs> See? There's a reason for this. Put this down on your resume. Uh, or on ours, I don't know. Yeah, uh, so tell me about what, what the hell's going on here with The Last Jedi. Well, so last time we spent a lot of time talking about The Last Jedi, and there were still some more things that were kind of lingering since that time, uh, because we had just devoted so much time to it, and it wasn't The the Last Jedi show. Uh, but there were some things that I kind of wanted to come back to and flesh out a little more, and some things that we just didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, some of them are things that seem to kind of confuse viewers, uh, things that I was seeing online and maybe hearing as I was leaving the theater uh, a few times. Um, others were just things that maybe have come up since. So I started to touch on this last time, and then I kind of didn't really get to it where I wanted to. But uh, one of the scenes uh, that evoked a lot of controversy in The Last Jedi was when Leia gets sucked out into vacuum when the bridge of her ship um, is attacked. And uh, she reaches out through the Force and facilitates her own rescue mm-hmm. uh, to get back into the ship and, and, and lives. Um, special effects-wise, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world. It kind of had this Mary Poppins kind of appeal. <laughs> but what I liked about it, though, was that it operated to subvert this lingering idea in the fandom that Leia never pursued any Jedi training. Now, Ryan Johnson has gone on record saying that uh, he wrote, you know, or that that scene was constructed, um, you know, to show that Leia could reach out through the Force. It was a survival instinct thing. Um, but, you know, since, since it never really explicitly says that in the movie, um, you know, I, I think that there's room uh, for an alternate reading in which we can imagine that maybe Luke did put her through some kind of Jedi training. Because you have to imagine, you know, obviously, as the films have displayed, um, there is lingering uh, remnants of the empire trying to make it, you know, now it's like the alt empire or something Mm -hmm. um, that that's trying to take the galaxy back and try to take power back. So you, you got to know that somebody like Leia is going to have a target back for the rest of her life. So I can't imagine that her brother would leave her defenseless in terms of the force. Like he he would make sure that she off, you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I, I think that, that fans have to kind of um, accept the fact that there's stuff that goes on that doesn't get filmed. And, uh, you know, and as fan fiction writers, we have we have a tendency to sort of, you know, oh, my God, this wasn't this wasn't filmed. So we're going to plug that in. But, um, you know, that the, there's a lot of things that are left implied that, that, are, that they don't really end up on the screen. But um <clears throat> to me, we're, we're people of intelligence, and uh, presumably we can make the logical leap, and it's not a very big leap, it's a very small job, actually, that says, 
if she could do something with the force, it means she she probably had some sort of uh, you know refinement of uh, of her use of it because otherwise you you know as we as we learn in um, Return of the Jedi you need uh, not no the other one um, uh, ah the Empire Strikes Back uh, you, you learn that by having uh, training you can focus it better you have you know by having better control you stop being undisciplined and sort of you know you know like uh all over the place and instead you you can aim and you can you can you can work it so much better and if she can work it better than somebody with no training then you know by the transitive principle we would assume that she's had some training we should yeah I completely, completely agree with with, with everything that you just said. It makes absolute perfect sense. I I think, though, that there is a faction of fandom out there that's, and this is any fandom, that they're very literalist. And so they will take the fact that Ryan Johnson said that it was just survival instinct in the most fundamental way mean that Leia never had any training. And this is where we've talked about this concept before, this idea of death of the author, where just because an author or a filmmaker had some kind of intent uh, when when they created a work, that doesn't mean that they control what people do with it and how they interpret it while it's out in the wild. So while I advocate that we don't exclusively uh, uh, interpret and criticize works that way because I I do believe that the works themselves and the authors are products of the culture that produced them and we have to kind of look at these things sort of ecologically. Um, I do also think that in a lot of circumstances, especially in in a situation like this where, where it's never definitively said on screen that she did or didn't have some kind of force training, um, you know, I think that there's room for there's some room for death of the author in this particular instance. And so, if J.J. Abrams wants to come along later on and and say, well, you know, yeah, she trained with Luke for ten years, you know, then then there's still definitely room for that. Yeah, I mean, if somebody wants to write a, uh, uh, you know, a backstory or or like a, a flashback scene, uh, I mean. Well, I, I guess from her, from her perspective, not from Luke's, uh, you know, it, if it could be in the ninth film, uh, you know, I remember back when, you know, we, when we were in the, the swamps of Dagobah and he was showing me how to do X, Y, Z, uh, then, hey, that's, uh, then there you go. You're, you're set, folks. But if you don't get that, it's still, uh, it's still highly plausible that there was some sort of uh, means of learning how to focus because, you know, you have something that, say, um, uh, that can be used as a weapon, if nothing else, and uh, you don't learn how to aim weapons, then they're pretty useless to you. So uh, if she's shown to have the talent, which she is shown to have the talent at the end of uh, The uh, the Empire Strikes Back, then then it's, uh, it's criminal to not give her any training. Exactly. And and this kind of into a larger criticism. Uh, one of the criticisms I heard about this and about Luke Skywalker's uh, ability to uh, reach across the galaxy from astral projection, um, you know, in order to fool Kylo Ren and, and, and buy the remaining uh, resistance members time to where they were hiding. Um 
The complaint is, is that Leia's ability to survive in vacuum and, and this astral projection thing weren't, quote, set up <laughs> before. I, I know, right? Um, before we saw it on the screen. Um, now, as far as the Luke thing and astral projection goes, in, in terms of, earlier in the film, um, in terms of Ray and Kylo Ren, it was set up that doing such a thing would kill a person trying to do it, which, you know, we saw Luke die at the end. So that was the implication that we were supposed to take away that, you know, this astral projection thing was so hard that he evaporated and became one with the force, just like uh, Yoda and Ben Kenobi did. Um, Ryan Johnson has also gone on record and pointed out that, you know, how much of this was set up when we saw star Wars or, or the empire strikes back, you know, um, Luke on Dagobah doing those giant uh, force-enhanced leaps. Like, that wasn't established in in the first Star Wars movie. So to, to argue that, oh, well, we never saw Leia you know, show any kind of you know, ability to, to use force to survive in vacuum. Well, okay, first of all, we kind of did, not to that extreme, but we know that she felt her husband die in the last movie. Mm-hmm. Earlier in this movie, we... She felt Kylo Ren debating whether or not to kill her. Okay. She heard Luke call out to her on Bespin after he got his arm cut off and was dangling from a weather vane. So, you know, she 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 and Chewie piloted the Falcon to go rescue him. So we, we know that she has some innate ability to use the force, whether she can it at those points or not so I, I i would say that there is precedent that this talent as you were saying what was trained and refined so that we, she could use it more effectively um you know I, I i don't see the need to say oh by the way uh people can astral project if they're strong enough in the force in some previous movie in order to introduce now we've established that luke is a powerful jedi albeit one that shut himself off from the force after he inadvertently created kylo ren but very powerful nonetheless so the the fact that people are saying that it wasn't set up or previously established it tells me that if that's your complaint then you like things very simplistic and spoon feedy and maybe complex thought isn't you <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and the other thing is what, you know, when the Star Wars universe was introduced in uh, 1977, right? Uh, there was no preliminary stuff, yet people had no problem following the story or what the Force was or what it could do and what, uh, you know, and how fast the, the ships could go and, and whatnot. And uh, I, so if if it bothers you that it wasn't uh that it wasn't presented before just look at the film as being the first film in the in the um in the series yeah and it, i i don't know it just um to me i i just kind of feel like if if those if that's the nature of your criticism it kind of goes back to the thing about it being more about your expectations not being met than it is about anything inherently wrong with the film yeah, well, you know, this is also the, the, the gatekeeping that we've seen uh, in the Star Trek fandom as well, which is, uh, it doesn't work for me, I don't like it, therefore, the fandom doesn't like it. 
Yeah, yeah, this idea that you speak with an authority that you don't have and you somehow <laughs> represent the entire fandom. Yeah, yes, I just... No. <laughs> no, 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 the, the fandom's more diverse than that, and as is the Star Wars fandom, as as is pretty much every fandom. Uh, you know, if there's more than one person who's a fan of something, you know, just two people can have different opinions on stuff. You, you know, if you've got millions of people or who like a, a fandom, then you've got to believe that they've all got their own take on it. And uh, some of them are, are looking at that and say, hey, this is awesome. I wasn't spoon fed this. This is something that I had to uh, that I had to make a conclusion over. And I'm really glad that they didn't treat us like idiots. And, and speaking of being spoon-fed, aha, uh -huh. let's let let's segue. This actually uh, ties into Luke and his astral projection. So, so after his ruse um, against Kylo Ren is over, and and his sister and 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 the other uh, other Resistance members escape with Ray in in the Millennium Falcon. Um, we see this moment where we see Luke sitting on a rock, and instead of being on, on, on the ocean world where he was hiding, um, we see him uh, looking at a twin sun sunset of Tatooine. And a lot of people seem to be confused by this, and, and I hope that in, in the month that has interceded here, that they kind of understand it. But in case they don't, I'll explain it. <laughs> Luke knew he was dying because, you know, I mean, he had to be pretty worn out and used up after after that complex astral projection thing. So, what do dying people do? Well, you know, we say that uh, their life flashes before their eyes. Um, if they know it's coming, sometimes they try to say goodbye, which Luke kind of did with Leia earlier when he asked her, uh, the, the the gold dice that used to be hanging on Solo's uh, ship. Mm -hmm. um, so I think Luke took, you know, what little strength he had live, left to go home and watch one last sunset before he went on to become one with the Force. But it's very <laughs> obvious that he's on tattooing there. A lot of people didn't get it. They thought, oh, well, where did the second sun suddenly come from on this other planet? <laughs> and, and, oh, and, boy. You know, it, it was just kind of no-brainery. Um, that, that, so I, I was kind of amused. I, I was alternately amused and annoyed. I just didn't <laughs> think it was really that hard to figure out. But so, so in case you needed that help, he went home and said goodbye to home and watched one last sunset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can put that fan theory to bed, folks. We're all set. Yeah, and and you know part of, and um, you know also going along with the astral projection, um, Luke had shorter hair and and a less gnarly beard during those scenes, and so some people were confused by that. And it's pretty obvious because when you, th you know, they they actually did set that up, you just needed to think about it for a little while. That's what Luke looked like the last time Kylo Ren saw him. Mm. And it's also, you know, by extension, what Luke looked like the last time Leia saw him. So if he's doing this very elaborate Jedi mind trick across galaxies and make or across the galaxy and making people uh, see him when he really isn't there, of course, it's going to evoke image of him that they have in their minds. They're not really seeing their minds to them think he's 
they're seeing him. Yeah, I mean, you know, why if uh, you know, just sort of taking it as an almost scientific thing, if you if you were doing something that took an enormous amount of energy, and you had the choice of either projecting uh, your own choice of uh, of look or letting another person take on that burden and do that, you'd probably conserve your energy and let them do it. Yeah, and you know, they kind of um, did something with this in, in the original Star Trek series with, with uh, the man trap and the salt vampire, right? Yes, well, yes. Yeah, so McCoy saw, you know, young and beautiful Nancy Crater because that's what she looked like the last time he saw her, whereas the other people who saw her um, saw what they had more imagined that, or what they expected a Nancy Crater to look like. So even though the film didn't go into it, I imagine uh, Poe Dameron would have seen a different version of Luke still. I mean, if he's never seen a, a hologram or a photograph... You know, he he might you know have Luke be you know short, dark haired, and and you know missing some teeth. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but I kind of get the impression that everybody would their their last memory of him, or just what they imagined he would have been. I, I I think that's very logical. You know, it, it, yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. You see what you want to see, and you're you're shown what you want to see. And I think Leia immediately knew who and what she was dealing with, that Luke wasn't really there, that the metal dice really weren't real. Um, you know, and, and I think that that part of that partly too was kind of Luke subtly communicating that to her. Um, but, you know, I think that she would have expected Luke to change in the interceding years. And when she didn't, that was probably her first tip off as to what was going on. Yeah, that something something's weird here. I mean, if I, yeah, if you and I looked like we did twenty years ago, I think we'd, um, yeah, that would be kind of strange. You can expect so, that. So those were kind of like my my last kind of threads that I wanted to tie together in terms of the Last Jedi, and I will just go back on record of saying that, you know, this movie defied my expectations, and I felt like that this was a good thing. But I think that um, there's a faction of fandom that we need to talk about uh, that, that oh, yes. doesn't feel that way. Do, do, do you want to talk about um, that aspect? <laughs> oh, yes. The, uh, and, and we see this in Star Trek as well, uh, where there's a big pushback uh, that we're not happy that the, the heroes and even the villains aren't all... Uh, cis white men and uh or maybe we could we could handle it if there was a woman in there if she wasn't strong if she was to be rescued you know she she trips over her high heels and has to be carried or or you know you gotta pull her along by the hand kind of nonsense and uh, there's a large faction who think that by showing women with power and uh, and also and people of color as well, male and female, that uh, they feel that it's emasculating, uh, that uh, that white men are being uh, shut out and put down, and uh, you know, and, and that they're not important and all of that. Uh, and it's it, the, the, this anger is misplaced. Uh, you know, first off, recognize that. Uh, you've kind of had the spotlight for a really long time. So if you're unable to uh, share that with anybody else, that might say something about 
what you're like and what and you know what uh what what uh having the spotlight means to you if that means shutting out other people then that's you know it's misplaced um you know you've had you've had uh 5000 6000 years of culture uh which has been for the most part white male centric or at least male centric and uh and now we've got you know 2 years of it that's not quite so white male centric. I mean, you know, at least in in a sense of fairness, you got to say, well, okay, maybe we can, maybe we can seed some of this, but uh, there's a butthurt section of the fandom. It is but a hurt section of both fandoms, by the way. But uh, uh, so men's right activists uh, did their own cut of the last Jedi and they took out a bunch of stuff from uh, both Leia and, um, Laura Dearn's character, and I'm totally blanking on her name. Admiral Holdo. Thank you. And uh, did they knock out Ray and Rose as well? I I think so. I I you know honestly I I couldn't bring myself to watch the thing because mm-hmm. um you know first of all to me it's just blatantly obvious that this reaction to the threats of loss of privilege, and and this is what people do when they feel like that. So if, if you're that threatened by a bunch of women, I, I don't really want to give your work. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, th- this is uh, it, it's troubling that people uh, that people are that are that hurt by this, that that this bothers them so badly. You know, why should it? And from what I understand, by the time they got done, so I kind of want to say that they did take out the Rose and Ray stuff, because by the time it was over, like, this movie clocked over two and a half hours in theatrical release, Mm -hmm. and what I read in articles about it is that they were left with, like, 46, 47 minutes worth of footage. (laughs) So that should tell you something, you know, about, uh, and and that that also means that they, uh, they took a chainsaw to it. And, uh, if this bothers you so much, so much, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things you can be a fan of. Yeah, and it just kind of goes back to one of the links I shared with uh, the last episode, uh, and we talked about this for a little while while, while talking about The Last Jedi, about how toxic masculinity was the real bad guy in, in The Last Jedi, and I, I think that we're seeing a real-world manifestation yeah, I think we are. That uh, yeah, that that it's tox- toxic masculinity has kind of uh, come back to the fore again, and uh, and and we're seeing it in both of these fandoms. That there's, uh, you know, oh my god, you know, the, the women are so they're so mean. <laughs> yeah. No- it, it- it, it was such a trip too because uh, last year I, I took um, a rhetoric communication, and we. We're split up into two groups, and my group actually was working on um, alternative press and and the way it discussed uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, So we looked at, um, you know, left-leaning web publications and right-leaning web publications. Ones on the right were just tripping me out. Like, even if they liked the movie, they had to, you know, say things in there like, well, Leia dresses like an old lesbian and 
Oh boy. Um, Ray isn't feminine enough, and you know it just the, the the women characters are okay, but you know they've lost what makes women special and pretty and feminine and oh, reach through the screen and punch anybody through the nose so badly in all my life. Yeah, that will that that could be fun. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, again, if if that's where you have to stoop. To make a criticism, then I would question the legitimacy of your criticism. Well, it, it you know also considering that uh, a, a two and a half hour film gets knocked down to forty six minutes because they're pulling out all of the uh, the female uh, characters and, and and all of their uh, all of their scenes and all and all of their lines. Uh, somebody's got a hell of a lot of time on their hands too. Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> You know, and and that that also kind of, I've always wondered about that, is, uh, yes, we have a lot of leisure in our culture, but uh, why are you wasting so much of your energy with this when you could could be doing things that you enjoy? Why is this the thing that that is taking up so much headspace? Uh, You know, why are you letting it? Yeah, I, I, it, it, it really boggles the mind. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I kind of want to. There are those out there who would deny that male fragility is a thing, and I'm just here to tell you that if you're that that a group of people would cut a movie down like this because they disliked the women so much, and and they disliked the idea that women would be in charge and have some authority and agency. That right there is a living example of male fragility. <laughs> Can, uh, shall, shall we segue into the next one, which is a nice big example of it? Oh, good God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in legal news. <laughs> yes, so in legal news. So you may not have heard the name Rosemary Aquilina before, but you'll hear it again, I'm sure. Rosemary Aquilina um, is uh, she's a judge, and uh, she was the judge in the La- Larry Nasser case. Uh, Larry Nasser is the uh, it's the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, U.S. Olympic Gymnastics Sexual Assault case. So uh, people got a little nuts about uh, <laughs> maybe that's not the right word, but people people got. Um, uh, uh, let, let, let me also give you a little bit of background on her. She is a uh, circuit uh, circuit court judge in Ingram County in Michigan. Uh, in the, yeah. So according to um, according to Wikipedia, she uh, she got her bachelor's in English education and journalism at Michigan State in 1979, and uh, her law degree at Cooley Law School in Lansing, Michigan, in 1984. Uh, she worked for 10 years uh, for uh, State Senator John Kelly, then as a partner in his firm. She also formed Aquilina Law, where she practiced in partnership with her sister. She hosted a syndicated talk show, asked the family lawyer, joined the Michigan Army National Guard, uh, became the state's first member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps, 
nicknamed, uh, acquired the nickname Barracuda Aquilina. That's hard to say. Um, Served for 20 years before retiring. She's an adjunct professor at Cooley Law School and at Michigan State University College of Law. She ran unsuccessfully for the Michigan State Senate in the 1990s. In 2004, she was elected judge of the 55th Michigan District Court and in November 2008, judge of the 30th Circuit Court for Ingram County. And I'll just add that this um, happened, this is happening in my backyard of where I grew up. So Ingham County is um, right next to Livingston County, which is where my hometown is. So, you know, all the, all the time growing up um, in, until I entered my adult life, everything that we did practically revolved around the Lansing area and, and all of this. So, so this is pretty. Yeah, this is this is this is local, and I keep saying Ingram, and I, and it's Ingham, and I'm sorry. So so anyway, so so, uh, it's just last week actually, uh, which is during the week of uh, January the twenty first. Um, so the Na- the Nasser case, uh, he was um, he was accused in both federal and state court, and uh, the federal case already went down, uh, and uh, and he was he was already guilty there. He was already sentenced there. Uh, what happened last week was the sentencing in the state case. He pled guilty. That's very important. Keep that in front of your minds, folks. He pled guilty. So he voluntarily said, yeah, I'm guilty. But he only pled guilty to a few of the cases. Now, now to, to, to sort of you know back up a little bit on this. For several years, over 30 years, which is frightening in, in the length of time, uh, he was a team doctor for uh, the uh, U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. And so these are young girls. That usually you age out of the sport by the time you're about 21, 22 years old. So we're talking about girls who were probably between about the ages of 13 and 18 to 19 at the most. So the vast majority of them are minors. Uh, doctors, obviously, they see us at our worst. They see us naked. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that's to be expected. But he went further than this. There wasn't just fondling. Apparently, there was penetration as well. Uh I don't know the precise details, and we've got a particular rating, so I'm not going to go into them anyway, but it's easy enough to Google this stuff. Uh, these girls were victimized uh, for decades. They complained, and their complaints fell on deaf ears. Uh, part of that uh, blame should be fallen at the feet of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Part of it should be against U.S. gymnastics. Part of it should be falling at the feet of Michigan State University because everybody liked the fact that gymnastics is big money, big sport, because people love it. And uh, when a, a girl can become like an American sweetheart kind of girl, then uh, much like figure skating, uh, there's big bucks and endorsements and you want to be a part of this. You know, you want to be part of this factory that churns out these girls over and over again, gets them onto the balance beam or the uneven bars and whatnot, uh, you know, the floor exercises and they, they, uh, they make their mark and, and they're, you know, and I mean, I still remember the name Olga Corbett. 
okay, who was who was Russian, you know, who um, who who uh, competed for the Russians over Corbett. This was this is like 1976. All right, that's how long ago that is. But I still remember who that person was. If you ask me for about the names of pretty much anybody else who was in the 1976 Olympics except for Mark Spitz, I would not be able to tell you their names. Yeah, my, my name, my, my name recognition um, actually goes back to figure seventies, like for uh, um, Dorothy Hamill and mm-hmm. Linda. Um, no, I'm sorry, Peggy Fleming is who oh, I was yeah. trying to think of. So, so you know, and, and I and I was a little girl in the seventies. You know, so, um, but they they were kind of like the ones who uh, were maybe headed for the wiggy. My my biggest memory though uh, of any is from I believe it was nineteen Olympics, Breton, and oh, you know every Breton, yeah yeah and so you know she just had this cute little short pixie cut and just this smile uh, that just radiated wholesomeness and and sincerity and I believe she did make it to the Wheaties box. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just you know, gymnastics is 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 a big way to get that name recognition that you're talking about, and and it's also it's a it's a female sport, you know, and that that's part of it too is that the the men don't really compete on a level playing field uh, for uh, for gymnastics. Uh, I mean, although yes, there is a men's gymnastics, but they don't seem to get the kind of incredible press and pressure for that matter that the girls do. So uh, they're under, uh, they're under an enormous amount of pressure and they're being abused and they're telling people in authority, they're telling their parents, they're telling their coaches, they're telling, you know, people from the USOC and saying, this guy is, uh, you know, he touched me in places that were inappropriate without me inviting him. And, you know, by the way, even if they had invited him, if they were under 18, it wouldn't have mattered. All right. So, yeah. uh, so, so this is going on. It's going on for decades. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to believe somebody or, or you're not sure about credibility, maybe the one, the first one or two can go by and you can say, okay, they're cranks or this or that, or they got some other agenda when it's, when it's going on for decades. Uh, no, you lose that presumption. It's it should be gone. Now you're you're willingly closing your eyes to this. So he did this. He pled guilty. Uh, it was he, and he actually pled guilty to only about five or seven, I think it was, of these cases. Uh, but something like 165 girls, or now women, uh, came forward and uh, presented impact statements saying this is what happened to me. You know, can you please take this into consideration when you are uh, sentencing him? So his sentencing hearing, uh, it was expected, uh, this is all expected to go go down in like three days. It took a week because of all the people who were talking. And, um, and, uh, and my understanding is that um, Judge Aquilina was also reading a bunch of this stuff as well. And so there's this very long uh, parade almost of people saying, uh, you know, you did this, you did this, you did this. And Nasser sent letters to the court, which is his right. And one of them was, he said it would be mental cruelty for him to have to listen to uh to all of these uh, these victim statements, and of course, uh, the judge had none, was having none of that. <laughs> Shut the front door. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, like that. Okay. Yeah, dude, you did this and you don't want to hear about it now? Yeah, you know, suck it up and deal. Mental cruelty. Yeah. <gasps> Uh, so she read, uh, I know that there's a, there's a bunch of, um, gifts out there where she's just throwing a piece of paper. That's not the only thing that happened. She actually, uh, that that it's, it's a a bunch of pieces of paper stapled together. That's a letter that he wrote to her, uh, in support of his, um, you can't really say appeal, but in support of his plea. And, uh, she read, she read pretty liberally from it in court. So she didn't just toss it. She really did read from it. So when you're just looking at the gif, it looks like she just discarded it. That's not really the whole truth. She did read from it. And everything she read from it was a lot of I, I, I. You know, and, <laughs> of course. You know, when we when we read uh, this sort of stuff, it's, um, you know, language is telling. It's, it's telling. And uh, when you're in a sentencing hearing, uh, yeah, you know what job one should be? Is showing remorse. Yes. And he never did. He doesn't do it in his letters. He doesn't do it anywhere. So, uh so she discards this and basically says, you know, you're, um, so what she gave him was, it was well within her, um, her abilities to do so. Uh, he could have gotten anywhere between 40 and 175 years. I'm going to explain why you give a huge amount of years in a moment, by the way. Uh, but so what she decided to do was she instead gave him 20 years that would be served consecutively. Uh, so they would be in order. So it's not that she could, that he could, uh, uh, fulfill all 20 year, you know, three times 20 within a a 20 year period. Instead, he would have to fulfill one, uh, a single 20 year period and then a second one and then a third. The truth is he's never going to get to that because he's got 25 years already in fed and he's 52 years old. So, (laughs) so if he makes it that long, uh, which he wouldn't, you know, he's not going to make it to over a hundred. That's not going to happen or, or, or over 70. I don't even think that's going to happen. Uh, then even if, uh, even if she had only given him 20 years, which would not actually not be within her purview, he probably still wouldn't make that. He, he's dying in prison. The question is whether it's in federal pen or it's in state. It, that's, that's obvious. He's dying in prison. Uh, she says, she says to him, one of the things that was quoted from her saying was, I've just signed your death warrant. Well, that's kind of true. And it's kind of, well, not, it's a little misleading because yes, she signed his death warrant, but so did the federal judge. It's not just her saying, I'm doing this to you. It's that, uh, you know, the, the, the sentencing guidelines uh, are it, it, doing this to him as well. I'm doing this to you right now. <laughs> Yeah, so, so, I, somebody else did this to you earlier. I'm doing it to you right now. Yeah, and you know, and I know that there was a lot of people who felt that she was very unprofessional because uh, she was saying, you know, that I I wish I could have given you, um, to me more than this, but you know, in the Eighth Amendment uh, to the United States Constitution, we're not allowed to give you cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, you know, so she said some things that were not very nice to him, and and. People on like Fox News and, and Washington Post and, and Time, they're saying, oh, my God, she wasn't nice to the to the serial rapist. Um, yeah. You know, you people have never been in a in a, a criminal courtroom before. I have. You know what happens in sentencing when somebody's guilty uh, is that the judge 
reads them in the riot act. They pretty much always do. They're doing that partly because they kind of want to, you know, get it out there that this was despicable what you did. But they also are very mindful of the people who are in the audience. Very often yeah. are people who are family and friends of this defendant, of this this person who's now being sentenced. So they're they're telling those people as well. They're telling this person's children their parents, their siblings, their, their their corner grocer or whoever the hell is there, they're saying to them, this guy's bad and you supported him and he's a bad person. So maybe you should think about what that means. And maybe of, you should reconsider supporting him. One of the things that came to mind as you were saying that is, you know, oh, well, boohoo, she wasn't very nice to him, right? But I think that these are the same people who also support... Um, you know, prisoners um, getting nothing but stale bologna sandwiches for every meal and no TV and no weight room and all this kind of stuff because prison is supposed to suck. Yeah. It, you so, know, it, so I think that there is some systemic misogyny at work there because I don't, number one, I don't think that they would have said that if a male judge had said exactly the same thing. I, I think that it's context dependent and I think it's hinging on the fact that this is a woman judge calling this, the, the, this, this monster out for crimes that he committed against women and little girls. Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And you know, it, it, I was in, I was thinking about uh, the prison system uh, when I when I was thinking over what we were going to talk about today. And you know, the prison system is um, in the, in the Western world, not just in the United States, is uh, is in really weird shape because uh, everybody knows that uh, prisoners uh, murder each other, they rape each other. They assault each other. And yes, there's a very strong uh, implication in what uh, Judge Aquilina is saying is that you're going to die in prison and not necessarily in a hospital bed or in your bed. Uh, yeah, we know that that happens. That, that happened to Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, he was killed by a fellow inmate. Uh, that's not a failing of the judge, though. The fact that the judge mentions this as being a very real possibility doesn't mean that she's, you know, that she's necessarily condoning that that's going to happen. But we all know that it does happen. But whose fault is that? The fault is in the uh, the people who are running the prison, really. Um, you know, the, the way that we run prisons is, is you know, it, it, and the way we do punishment is really strange here because... Um, we're uh, we're kind of learning. I think we're learning that incarceration doesn't work for a lot of people. And uh, what we are learning and what we continue to learn is that for folks, particularly who are not violent offenders, and this guy would be considered uh, a violent because, because rape is a violent crime. But for people who are not violent offenders, uh, when they get shoved into the regular prison population, that doesn't make them any better. That tends to make them worse. It tends to turn them into repeat offenders. And yeah, so and if this, oh, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Oh, no, I, you go ahead and then I'll say my thing. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and when we split up the population better and we say, okay, well, you know, you were, you, you did things that were bad, but you were, you were, um, you know, you weren't violent about it. You know, like Bernie Badoff, let's say, <laughs> uh, that, yeah, we do want to punish you. Yes, you did bad things. And we, you know, and we, we definitely want you to, to um, uh, 
uh, to pay for your crimes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we that you need to suffer for your crimes, quote unquote. You know, we uh, we um, we have all these weird philosophies about uh, about punishment and and prisons and um, you know pr- prisons used to be called penitentiaries, and the reason why is because it meant that you were supposed to be made penitent. You know, you're supposed to uh, you were supposed to learn to atone for your sins, and we don't really do that so much anymore. These days, we have a tendency to warehouse people uh, and to separate them from the regular population of the world. And then for the ones who are released back into society, then we wonder why the hell they um, they uh, reoffend. And very often the reason is because we haven't given them any tools for living in the real world because we've continually separated them from it. And uh, something has to change. I definitely don't have all the answers, but uh, something probably should change. And in particular for people who are not, uh, who aren't violent, uh, there's got to be some better way to make it that if they've done something bad that, but it isn't so super bad uh, to keep them from, getting to the next step and becoming like this. Well, Who's I mean, you, you said pretty much, um, you know, a lot of what I was about to say, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why we refer to it as the prison industrial complex. And that's because uh, a lot of prison has become privatized and it's only profitable if we put bodies in it. Right. So yes. it, it's been at least since the late sixties, early seventies, that there's been any focus on the, the, the rehabilitation aspect of our criminal justice system. Um, and and um, a lot of what little rehabilitation we have is either a joke because nobody takes it seriously or because it's so severely underfunded that it, it can't possibly work. And so just keeping a person behind bars and taking their freedom isn't necessarily going to solve the problem because either you're going to build a bigger, stronger, smarter um, uh, offender who's going to come out and re-offend because he doesn't have the social he or she doesn't have the the social support necessary to to rejoin society in a good productive way because you know um, we've just fetishized this idea that um, we we. we we all deserve our pound of flesh from somebody who has committed an against uh, an offense against society, and I don't know if we've ever gone into this on the show the couple or the the couple of times that we've talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I kind of was making a a pretty big defense for the Spike character because I, I'm I'm a hardcore Spuffy shipper. <laughs> and and a lot of the the fandom uh discourse surrounding that is you know if, if you if you support spuffy then you support rape culture because uh spike tried to assault buffy um in her bathroom when she broke off the relationship in and you know as a result of that like like spike realized that he screwed up and yes he was still looking at it through this haze of evil being a vampire but in, in within the story world he realizes he did wrong um still wants buffy to love him he realized you know that he has transgressed against her although he probably doesn't realize at the time exactly how badly he did but Somewhere in that evil little mind of his, he sends out that in order to 
number one, be worthy of her, and number two, to, to, to be a good man, he needs to have his soul restored. So unlike Angel, who had his soul restored as a curse, so that way he would feel all of all of the pain and all of the awful things that he's caused other people for the rest of his unnatural life, mm-hmm. Spike goes out there and fights for his soul. So it's kind of this redemption arc in that, you know, he definitely can't take back what he did, but he atones for what he did. You know, he... Also processes it a lot better than Angel did because he realizes that he can't take these things back. He can just go forward and be better than he was before. So the way this kind of relates to the, the prison conversation that we're having mm-hmm. is that in our society we we've kind of taken away, especially when it comes to sex crimes, they're they're, they're very taboo, uh, and we kind of don't have this attitude that number one, um, someone who is a sex offender could, um, or, or any kind of offender, and, and even especially the nonviolent ones, we treat them like scumbags because we don't really wrap our heads around the fact that they can pay their debt to society. Um, yes. and, and, and other countries, um, and I remember when I took uh, the psychology of atypical sexuality as an undergrad, we had a guest speaker from New Zealand, and at that time, they were actually having better results than the United States at preventing recidivism because, um, you know, at the time, it wasn't about shaming the hell out of people. Um, and again, this wasn't like somebody on the magnitude of what we're, we're, we're talking about with NASA. We're talking about you know, um, you know somebody who you know flashed somebody on a playground or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like like a little bit lower on the scale there. But you know, they they, they found that um, you know if you focus on therapy, education, rehabilitation, and also once they're back among the population, social support which means not barring them from holding down a decent job and not barring them from access to resources. Yeah. They don't re-offend. Wow. What a wild concept. Uh, you what know, a it, concept. <laughs> but Americans don't like that. Americans don't like that because they want the retribution. They want the, it, it doesn't give them the warm and fuzzy feeling. And it's only been within the last couple of years, I think, that New Zealand has even um, instituted a sex offender registry. But I think that that's for, like, the worst of the worst. Like, you know, here you get treated the same whether you're a Nasser or somebody who got caught peeing in an alley um, behind the club because the line was too long for the bathroom at two o'clock in the morning yeah it, exactly we have a we have a degree problem here in the united states and uh you know and and the more that we throw everybody into the same bucket uh the more they become the same you know and and what that means is that the the the, the people who are in there who are not really big time offenders and who have no no desire to reoffend and who are nonviolent those are not the people with the upper hand and those are not the people who are influencing everybody those are the people who are getting influenced they're getting influenced by these uh you know assuming that they survive their uh, their incarceration which which again is a, is a shameful and horrible thing that 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 happens at all but yeah, yeah. we uh we have lost sight of uh of what to do afterwards and uh you know if we're not going to support criminals afterwards then why are we letting them out at all 
Yeah, and, you know, it just, I mean, statistically, and, and just even with, you know, anecdotal evidence, um, you know, the, the war on drugs is a failure. Um, but, you know, it, it it's never going to go away, I feel, because, again, prison is profitable, and the, quote, drug war uh, supplies plenty of bodies to keep going. Yeah, you know, and um, the number of people, you know, the the, the number of um, people in prison in the United States has gone down in pretty much every state, and uh, uh, and uh, I was reading a study recently, and now I can't remember where the hell it was, but uh, uh, but it said like the top the the ten states that had the most reduction in imprisonment also had the most reduction in crime and uh you would and, and i don't mean that that it was you know that there were fewer criminals and so there were fewer imprisonments it was more that uh what they were showing was actually was was kind of the reverse that there were fewer people going to jail and that um but that still didn't um but that, uh, but you didn't end up with more people offending because there were fewer people going to jail. It, it, so basically, the the point being, I know I'm saying this really badly, but the point being that by uh, shoveling everybody off to jail, it didn't prevent people from offending. That being afraid of going to jail was not enough to keep people from offending. And in fact, when people, uh, when criminals weren't going to jail quite so much, when they were other programs, you know, when they were given community service, when they were given uh, rehabilitation for addicts and things like that, and job training, that uh, by getting those alternatives, which are certainly far nicer, that didn't mean that all these other people out in, in in the regular population of the world suddenly said, aha, it's awesome. Now we can go out and we can offend and do all sorts of horrible things. It didn't do that at all. Yeah, that, that's that's not how human psychology works. And I'm going to tell you, um, you know, somebody like a Nasser, who is obviously a pretty narcissistic. I mean, if you listen to that letter he wrote, you know, the whole I, I, I thing. Um, narcissists don't care about other people. So the threat of jail isn't really going to be enough to stop them because it's all about them and not what they're doing. They don't even see what they're doing to other people as a crime, for one thing. Mm-hmm. For another thing, um, in in terms of like other types of crimes, um, often you're dealing with desperation, and it's the desperation yes. that comes with um, poverty and systemic oppression. And so as long as we have those two things, you're still going to have people driven to do things that are against the law, either for their survival or for the survival of somebody else or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, So until we solve those problems, we're not really going to solve crime. But right now, again, because we profit so much off of, and I'll say it again, the prison industrial complex, (laughs) um, there's no incentive to take those things away. Yeah, you know, and 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 I and I see I've seen a number of programs that that are just these lovely things, and you really wish there were more of them. You know, like uh, like prisoners who um, who have uh, jobs that are that are things like where they where they train um, uh, service dogs and stuff like that, 
and uh, you know where they have other kinds of work and uh, these are people who are getting some pride in their life and you know that they want to do a good job because nobody's ever told them before in their lives that when you do a good job it's it makes you feel good Absolutely. And I remember like ages ago, like maybe even 20 years ago by now, I had watched one of those like 60 minutes, 2020 kinds of shows and stuff. And they were, they, they did this segment on, on uh, nonviolent criminals. So these were like mostly people who were in jail for drugs and stuff. Um, they were going through a program where they were learning how to become pet groomers. And uh-huh. what they were doing was taking, you know, these animals that had been rescued, and a lot of them were in bad shape, you know, full of mats. They needed, you know, baths. They needed haircuts. They needed deflation. So the prisoners would do that. And I tell you, I watched this thing and I just cried because, number one, they it, it, they were talking about how it kind of reconnect the, reconnected them with the idea of having compassion for somebody or something else. They felt needed and worthwhile they connected with these animals and you know it built them a skilled trade and the one thing that i remember coming up the most often was the animals didn't judge them yeah yeah so you know i'm I'm just kind of saying that you know maybe we need to rethink some of this stuff (laughs) heavy 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 thoughts for for what a tangent (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know it's 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 elevated, but um, you know, well, we talk about law, and you know, part of that is punishment. You know, it's not just crime; it's a punishment too. And just you learn stuff on our show. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let let's fluff it back up to some January fandom <laughs> roundup. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 come let's come back to the fun things. So, um, Riverdale um, has taken an interesting turn uh, before. The mid-season hiatus, um, if you've been following, they, they had this killer called the Black Hood, and he was uh, finally revealed um, and, and dealt with. So now they've got a new story arc. And I was kind of impressed as I was catching up this week. So I, I, I'm, I'm caught up through this week's episode. And they're taking on um, a particularly interesting social justice issue to me terms of the wrongs done to Native American and indigenous people and how that factors into systemic racism and poverty. And this is all done through kind of like um, a, a Founders Day Heritage Festival uh, that's happening in the town of Riverdale. And so it's one of those things where history has been whitewashed. So, so the hero that founded the town actually was responsible for massacring all the Native people who lived there. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, in the name of, you know, um, uh, I'll just come out and say it, uh, white settler conquest. Yeah. Um, so so they're, they're kind of dealing with that, but also through the character of Jughead, who, you know, thinks he's doing the right thing by writing this expose is actually, it, it actually kind of had the effect of making it worse for the people who have been wronged and, and, and did this thing that they didn't want him to do so it it kind of also highlights the difference of who really gets to call themselves an ally um and and, uh, i'll give you a hint if you belong to the dominant culture you do not get to call yourself an ally (laughs) it's it's you know the 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 people who uh belong to uh 
oppressed cultures, they decide whether or not your behavior is allyship or not. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of addresses that issue. And so I thought that that was really, really interesting. Huh. You know, and it's, it's like Riverdale has gotten to, into a depth that, uh, you know, considering its original source material is just utterly unexpected and, and uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, uh, one of my best friends, her daughter, uh, was always into Archie comics and and you know, read them and collected them. And actually, because they've they've, it's kind of different from the comics. She actually does not like the Riverdale show. But for me, you know, because I never really read the comics. I mean, I had a couple when I was a kid, but that was about it. And I think I watched uh, the Archie's cartoon that was on TV in the early seventies. Um, but that's the extent of my knowledge of, uh, Archie's world. So for me, uh, I kind of like the teen soap spin. I kind of hate myself for how much I like it <laughs> sometimes. Um, but it's, it's interesting characters and, and compelling stories and good writing. So why the hell not? This, this is how I unwind after a full day of thinking stuff. And then they make me think <laughs> some more because they have, you know, really well-structured, um, mysteries and things in there. So, um, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> that's um, that's fantastic, you know. And and, and well, and speaking of things that make you think, um, Star Trek Discovery has uh, has spun into a mirror universe, the mirror universe. Uh, lots of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, trying not to be spoilery, but uh, one thing that Michael Burnham says, which I found really interesting, and this is always the way I've thought about the mirror, is she says. Uh, she sees fear everywhere and that you always have to be on your guard that you have to pass for you know you have to look like you're obedient you have to look like you're ready at a moment's notice but the truth is everybody's terrified underneath yeah and so i thought that was really interesting because you know the 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 mirror universe has always been presented as a pretty oppressive culture And now through Star Trek Discovery, they're being a little less um, coy and indirect about what exactly is going on over there. And so for our listeners who maybe didn't get to us through Star Trek fandom, what the Mirror Universe is, it's a parallel universe where our doppelgangers exist, but it's quite a different world. So whereas uh, the Federation is a democracy, it's the Terran Empire in, in, in the pretty oppressive. It's pretty racist. Uh, they, they, they hate, um, you know, try to subjugate and dominate all species. So, like, you know, the, the Vulcans are not their allies there. Uh, the Andorians, the Tellarites, like any of the alien species that we've come to know and love through Star Trek are, are now, like, either slaves or they're rebels trying to overthrow the Empire. So the Empire hates anything that is not human. So so Discovery has gone over to the mirror. We're, we're learning some interesting things. Yeah, it, it's it's instead of looking like this campy romp like it can, uh, it's it's obvious this is a military dictatorship. You know, the when the Enterprise uh, Mirror Universe episodes came out, I thought they were were rather well done as well because they were um, uh, because the perspective was from the Mirror Universe. They had nothing to do with ours, so you saw just 
straight into what was going on in their universe and you saw how people would scheme and uh, because you always had to try to be getting ahead. But Discovery takes this and it amplifies it, you know, it turns it up to 11, which is basically what Discovery has done all along, is it's taken, um, it's taken Star Trek ideas, and in particular, Enterprise. It, it's, it's a very straight shot uh, sequel to Enterprise. And it's taken a lot of their ideas and it's amped them up to infinity. And it's saying, okay, it's not just that people are violent, it's that they are, this is an entirely oppressive society. This is, this is Hobbesian in the extreme. You, this is, you know, kill or be killed, eat or be eaten, and quite literally. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I did have to get that in there. And uh, there's, uh, you know, there's horrible stuff in there. But there's also uh, things that are might be a little bit idealist in there, but maybe not. Uh, people have all sorts of interesting theories about uh, about Captain Lorca, you know, and I don't want to get spoilery, so I really don't want to talk about what was revealed about him last week. But at the same time, uh, the impression that I get uh, is that there are people who are basically, I, I don't want to say good in the mirror universe, but who are uh, who have some nobility and some morality and or at least trying to do the right thing. And uh, those people on our side of the pond, uh, they uh, their actions we would still see as evil. But in their universe, when you parse it out and you, you, you know, you build in the shades there, you know, it's the same thing like, like what we were saying about the prison system where we throw everybody into the same bucket. You can't throw everybody in the mirror universe in the same bucket either because there are people who are truly evil, who, you know, who are, who are out for anything. You know, Hoshisato kind of comes to mind there. But uh, there's also people who are, you know, kind of maybe scheming a bit, but they're also in the back of their minds, they're saying, this can't continue there's you know i need to uh it, at least protect myself you know protect me and mine in some way and that harkens back to mr spock to the very first time we ever visited the mirror universe which was in the 1960 episode uh mirror um Spock was there. He was mirror universe Spock, and so I guess given the story, uh, the the story world that's been built around the mirror universe since, um, you know, since uh, the, the the Vulcans were a subjugated species, I guess maybe it's his half humanness that allowed him to be in the company of humans um, on the ISS Enterprise the first time around. Um, but you know, even though he's working for this corrupt empire, he still retains best of what made Spock Spock. You know, Kirk was able to appeal to his sense of logic, and and the thing is, is that logic was the same here as it was there. So, you know, we learn later on um, in in other incarnations of Star Trek that Spock started something, and, uh, you know, it it, kind of took off for a little while there. Yeah, that there's... That there's certain things that are universal, and uh, and that there that there even can be in this lawless place, there could still be people who are trying to do something that maybe isn't good, but at least is uh, 
has has got some sort of positivity to it. And even if that's only for the somewhat selfish idea of making sure that they and the people who they care about stay, uh, you know, stay alive. Uh, even if that it's for selfish mean, you know, for selfish uh, motivations, that at least somebody's trying to do something that is, you know, kind of in the in the realm of what's right. Uh, these are violent episodes. I think that's uh, very realistic. Actually, it's a it's a military dictatorship. Uh, you would you would have all sorts of horrible things. I mean, we've had we've had dictatorships here in. Um, here on Earth, in in the real world, and uh, uh, you know what happens is a bunch of people disappear into the gulag under Stalin, and over a million people are killed by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. That's what happens in dictatorships in the real world. Well, it's happening even now in modern day Russia. I mean, you know, as some people might know, because I've I've talked about it before. I, I've done some research on on the Russian punk band Pussy Riot and uh their fandom and you know, as i'm reading background on this trying to putting there um journalists uh kept disappearing and when they were found a lot of times they were murdered for um you know reporting on and speaking out against the putin administration and and standing up for the rights of you know women and and the lgbtq community of speech um you know if, if you protest if you government even now you're gonna go away that that's and that and that's one of the reasons why pussy riot um you know found it worth risking going to prison and three members of them did go to prison um earlier in this decade um you know, in order to to protest their corrupt government. So, if you think that it's something that happened during World War II era, or if it's something that happens, you know, in w whatever you want to call it, the Third World or the Global South, it, it's happening now. Yes. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Oh no, and I was just going to say that I like what you said when you highlighted what Michael said about all of it being motivated by fear. I mean, I think that we see it, a degree of it even in this country with, with the trends towards isolationism and and in in racism in in our country. It just you know, when when you're afraid all the time, you take these extreme measures to try to control everything. Um, and, and that's it, it's very easy to see how a mirror universe military dictator come to be. Oh yeah, and uh, you know the um, the mirror universe is very, very, very Hobbesian kind of an idea. And, and uh, Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher, and um, in the Leviathan, he talks about um, he says that life is short, brutal, and nasty, and that's exactly what the mirror is like. Yeah. So with that in mind, I am going to transition to something kind of spoilery. Um, and, you know, here's the thing and caveat out there. If, if you hate spoilers, if this is going to be a day wrecker, stop listening now. <laughs> um, but, you know, personally, um, I'm, I, I don't try to hold back a lot uh, from spoilers myself because a lot of spoiler culture um, actually operates to silence critique uh, whether it means to or not and I feel that critique is part of an important thing that we do here at Semantic 
shenanigans. So in the name of critique, I'm going to spoil some things here. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay, so now that we're in the mirror universe, one one of the um, one of the, the the consequences of that is that a uh, Wilson Cruz's character, uh, Doctor Colber, has died, um, and he a key part of uh, really the first out gay relationship on Star Trek Discovery. So the show has taken a lot of flack because, um, you know, there, there's this assumption that it's it's gone along with the bury your gays trope. Mm-hmm. And we, we've, we've talked about this very issue um, with, with, with Emmy Marshall, who is uh, very active in Days of Our Lives fandom. And so we, we've spent a lot of time talking about this subject and, and why uh, the, the Barry your trope is, is kind of, um, it, it needs to go away is basically what needs to happen you know it, it just those of you who don't know what that means um, it's when you have a token gay character that exists only to die and so it, it kind of operates as this um, othering mechanism that's that treats gay people as less than compared to uh, their straight counterparts um, that said uh, dr. Culber dies um, but the showrunners assure us that it's not the trope and i think it's worth highlighting that that the main showrunner is an out gay man himself so i don't think that he would intentionally do anything to to kind of like harm the representation lgbtq community uh particularly in in a property that he's in charge of uh right now which is star trek um so we've been assured by him and and by Wilson Cruz that this is not the last that we've seen of Dr. Culber. In fact, um, he made an appearance last week. Um, but, you know, there, there's also the hint that maybe he'll be back for future episodes. Maybe they will have a way to undo this. Uh, there's been some grumbling in the fandom that, you know, that if he does come back, then it's kind of like this um, uh, cheap magic reset button <laughs> kind of thing mm-hmm. that you see a lot in science fiction. But my thing is, is that like it is science fiction. So if they use a sci-fi solution, why are you going to get mad? Yeah, this this is what you're watching. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you not seen Star Trek before? <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody in Star Trek has to stay dead. We've proven that over and over again. So. Um, you know, the showrunners, they, they've been on the After Truck program, and, you know, they, they've been on enter- Entertainment Weekly. Uh, they, they, they assure us that it, it does serve a story purpose, and part of that story purpose is to show um, how deep the love is between Stamets and Culber, and, and just how rich and awesome that... Um, that relationship is so i don't know I, I i think i have faith that they will resolve this in a satisfying way um you know and, and i kind of see the perspective of uh kind of like you know on the one hand you want uh lgbtq as well as others of historically oppressed communities to be represented in a positive way and and not to be tokens that are easily thrown away. And I totally get that. But on the other hand, I I think that they're coming from the perspective of, um, you know, not giving them like bulletproof story armor because of, you know, they belong to a certain, have a certain sexual orientation. 
or whatever. So again, kind of like what I was saying in the last show about, um, you know, people of color being forced to kneel uh, or the first order in, in Star Wars, the last Jedi. I think that this is just kind of a natural consequence of diversifying your cast and the bad guys being bad guys. Yeah, exactly. You know, if your if your cast is um, uh, is diverse, and somebody ends up dying, you know, and a character dies, well, and then kind of by definition, that a diverse character is going to die, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just that you know that the you know when you roll the dice and you've got you know you've got ten characters and you know eight of them are diverse well yeah kind of it's going to be a lot more likely that they're going to you know that somebody who's diverse is going to be the one to kick the bucket and uh you know that's there's nothing wrong with that that's you know it, if it's got a um if there's a, a meaning to it in the in the story you know and, and that's the but that's the truth about any about killing off any character you know you don't you, you shouldn't just be uh you know, slitting the throat of a character. That's a horrible image. Sorry about that. Um, it Just for kicks, you know, that's, that shouldn't be happening. On the should, show, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, it, I mean, it's that, that's, it's just that, that's a, that's a bad way to treat characters. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to point out that the showrunners have even said that, you know, Dr. Colbert didn't die because he was the gay guy and disposable. He actually died because at the time he was the, Artist person on the ship and he was starting to figure out another character's secret and so he could have you know very easily blown the whole thing apart and he was on the verge of doing so right then and there and then things happened and you know, he died as a result of the thing that he was discovering not as a result of his sexual yeah, exactly. Which, which is, which is comforting to me. You know that there was a purpose behind his death, and it was a very good purpose behind his death. Um, it, the other thing is that they have said in Aftertrack that he doesn't have a mirror counterpart, or at least we never see it. And I like that idea very much. That uh, first off, that he's pure. Uh, that he's somebody who's got motives who we can trust, and also that it. It tends to explain the difference between prime universe Stamets and mirror universe Stamets because they're both smart scientists, but uh, prime universe has somebody to love him and that gentles you and mirror universe does not. And so he doesn't have his little tribe to defend. He's just got himself. And you know, what you were just saying about purity, the thing that just registered in my head so you know i used to be very active in teaching um film appreciation students as a supplemental instruction leader uh, for that class of my alma mater and so one of the things that we learn about in that class on mise-en-scene which has to do with what you see like how things are arranged and it it goes uh beyond into like wardrobe hair makeup uh decoration props yeah, his and wardrobe. It, yeah, so, you know, here's the thing, like, you know, we, we're used to the idea of doctors, like, in these white lab coats, so it makes sense that the medical team would wear white, but when you consider that Culber, until recently, has been the representative of the medical team, 
always in this bright white uniform. Like, that's not an accident. That, that doesn't just signify him as a doctor, but, you know, white also brings with it those connotations of purity. And so I, you know, I, I've seen the interviews with, with their head wardrobe person uh, on After Track, you know, from, from week to week. And she she's smart, <laughs> you know. She, yeah. she 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 designs and chooses the wardrobe very purposefully. So I think that there is no accident that um, the medical uniforms are all bright white um, when they've been historically blue because he is supposed to be so. Yeah, exactly. That it that it showcases goodness and also. Um... You know, and uh, you know the whole cleanliness and next to godliness, but also, but but also that uh, he's untouched by the violence. Yeah, so um, I, I would say that uh, Doctor Culver is anything but but the trope that we've seen before, which is awesome. So, how about the X Files? What's going on there? Oh my God! Be still, my shiver heart. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, in addition to being shipper trash for Han and Leia, I'm shipper trash for Mulder and Scully. Um, so, last season kind of um, saw some disappointment among um, X-Files fans, particularly those who uh, ship Mulder and Sculler, Scully. Sorry, I, I, I was conflating two things at once because there's Mulder and Scully, but I was about to say how instead of like the usual portmanteau where they combine names, uh, the Mulder and Scully relationship is MSR for Mulder-Scully relationship. So both of those things tried to come out at the same time. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. So last season, which was actually two years ago and just a short season of six episodes, um, a lot of MSR fans were really, really disappointed because um, through the end of the original run of the X-Files, it... Um, we discover that uh, Mulder and Scully not only have been intimate, but they 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 parented a child together. Whoops. Um, yeah, so that was pretty awesome. Scully had Mulder's baby, but then you know because of the whole like contract dispute craziness that was going on behind the time, uh, David Duchovny was hardly in the last season at all until the very end, and it was just this tragic storyline where Scully had to give the baby up for adoption because there was always a target on her back, there was a target on his back, so in her mind, um, without Mulder there to help her, um, it was just kind of the best way that she could hide him and take him line of fire, and then Mulder comes back for the finale and gave up their child. There was a movie in between where where we learned that um, if they weren't currently married, they at least had been. Or you know, there there's some suggestion of relationship trouble uh, that seemed to be getting resolved by the end of that second film. So we come to season ten, and the relationship clearly hasn't worked out, and so that was very very disappointing. Also, they kept dangling the, the carrot of the child that they had together. His name is William. So they, they kept hinting that, you know, they might go look for William, which kind of like among the fandom opened up all of these like ethical issues and questions. And because, you know, if, if William is happily situated with a family since and, you know, wrong for Mulder to let go. So last season ends on a cliffhanger. 
this season, they completely undo that cliffhanger and just do everything they can to invalidate that, which ended up as a big WTF moment for fans. But what even was worse, and I'm going to spoil here again in the name of critique, um, the, 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 the main bad guy throughout all of the X-Files, um, his, his uh, CG bender, but like he's never really had a name through most of the show, so they would either call him the cigarette smoking man or cancer man. Mm-hmm. And so he was always that, that shadowy figure um, subverting the government, and, and, and he's always seen smoking a cigarette. So in this episode, Cancer Man claims that he's actually the father of Scully's baby, that he's William's father and not Mulder. Okay. If, if you haven't been following the show, what you have to know, too, is that Cancer Man is also Mulder's biological father. So he's not the father that raised Mulder. Mulder's mother was getting a little something, something on the side. and So it's like this whole twisted thing. But what, what, what this has led to, though, is some pushback from fans because this really raises issues, again, about consent. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the violation of Scully's body and, and, and you know, that standing in for like women in general. So, you know, we, we know that cancer man kind of had a thing for Scully. There, there, there was an episode where he kind of kidnapped her and they spent a lot of time together. And, you know, it, it, it was clear that he admired her in perhaps a romantic way. Um, so just this idea that Cancer Man, number one, would be William's father is kind of icky. Um, and especially, like, because uh, Scully was rendered theoretically unable to have children because of alien and government experiments done on her and all this kind of stuff. So the idea that she and Mulder could have conceived a child out of love and, and, and you know, had this miracle of birth was just kind of like a beautiful, beautiful thing for MSR fans. And so, number one, to have that undermined by Chris Carter writing that Cancer Man is William's father uh, w- w- was just unspeakable. And then yeah. the idea that, you know, he violated her somehow... Is just terrible. So Chris Carter, the creator of, uh, of the X Files, and you know the, the 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 main person behind it all, he defends this choice in a very tone deaf kind of way, um, basically saying that he that Cancer Man has impregnated her with science. Oh, for fuck. And that he didn't rape her. So the idea that, you know, again, like, just kind of this tone deafness to the idea that, you know, a science experiment does not make it less of a violation. Yeah, this is just icky. It's gross. Now, the other thing, though, and again, I'm not as mad as some people are because at the very beginning of the episode, you know how they have the opening credits and then it ends with, I want to believe Mm -hmm. this one ends with, I want to lie. And we know that we can't trust cancer man. He is definitely not a reliable narrator. Okay. So he will say anything to manipulate Mulder, to manipulate Scully, to manipulate the government, to manipulate anybody he has to. So I think that the revelation that William is his child could be a complete fabrication done to kind of like start some dominoes tipping that he wants to tip. 
And who knows, maybe he's, quote-unquote, the adopted parent. Right. So, you know, well, actually, no, they kind of show it at the end, like, who adopted William. Oh, it was, like, right. like, like kind of like this nice little couple in, like, I don't know, Indiana or Iowa. Someplace with more corn than even I have. <laughs> um, but but the, the idea being was that it was safe, it was wholesome, and there was lots of corn, middle America kind of. And he was going to be okay. Yeah. And he was going to be okay. So, you know, I mean, who knows? Cancer Man might have gotten his hands on him later on. But that was certainly not the implication uh, with the series finale back in the early 2000s. So, we we have the rest of the season to find out really what the truth is there. Um, but, you know, it just kind of left um, a lot of fans, particularly uh, women, with just a really icky taste in their mouth. that The idea that this was an okay thing for Chris Carter right and to put on the air yeah that's strange it gets better though okay because again be still my shippy heart <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little bit behind i'm only into episode three of this but um they have revisited um Mulder scully relation uh, the second episode of the season has some teases about what their relationship was like, and apparently not only, you know, did they have a romantic relationship, whether or not they were married, but apparently they got their freak on, which was brought out by a joke about handcuffs, which was Whoa. really awesome. <laughs> but in episode three, got busy, and it was awesome. They didn't show a love scene, but everything that you needed to know was there, and so it seems that romance is rekindling so I'm very happy about that so we'll probably have more to say about the X-Files next time but that's that's where we are right now Okay, yay, 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 shipperific stuff. Um, <laughs> so, uh, moving on to something, a couple of, we have a couple of um, obituaries recently uh, from a couple of uh, somewhat, somewhat different women, but both pretty important. Uh, the death of Ursa, Ursula K. Le Guin at age 88 was very recent. <laughs> Uh, Le Guin, if you don't know this name, you really should. Uh, she, she was one of the uh, the big science fiction writers. Uh, one thing that was uh, that uh, I, we're, we've got a, a few art, uh, articles about her um, her death and you know and, and her uh, legacy, including one from Slate. And the the Slate article uh, says something really interesting. Let me just uh, find it. Uh, there it is. Uh, so uh, she had she was interviewed by uh, the New York Times a few years ago, and um, she she uh, told a story that in 1971 she was asked to write the blurb for an anthology of quote the most innovative thought provoking speculative fiction ever end quote by an editor who somehow failed to notice that he had not included a single female in a celebrated letter. Uh, Le Guin denied a decline, and she said um, she dismissed the anthology not just for this omission, but for its tone, saying, quote, which is so self-contentedly exclusively male, like a club or a locker room. Gentlemen, I just don't belong here, end quote. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go, girl. <laughs> yeah, get some self in that burn, folks. So, uh, so this is somebody who was, uh, you know, 
we we've seen uh, female science fiction writers uh, at times uh, kind of uh, dismissed, and she was uh, at earlier in her career. Fortunately, much later, people realized just what an incredible genius and gift she was. Uh, the other. Uh, obituary we have is uh, Dolores O'Riordan, who was way earlier than 88. Uh, She was the lead singer of the Cranberries and um, a beautiful, beautiful voice uh, and unfortunately is is stilled. Uh, Yeah, that one was, you know, because she was, the Cranberries were very, very popular in the 90s and in the mid 90s. My career as a hairdresser and back then um number one i was a lot smaller than i am now um but i i had my hair in this very short blonde pixie cut kind of thing and, and so uh one of my my classmates and beautiful bobby every time i walked past he would start singing cranberry song zombie so you know it it was just kind of it was it was an end joke but you know i also really enjoyed the cranberries music and you know i really liked dolores or reardon and so just because you know even just that that silly little story this one just kind of really hit home when i read it i mean she and also she was 46 years old she um uh i don't think we have been told the cause of her death uh, but uh, she was uh, battling mental illness. We do know that. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I hope that she's found some peace. But uh, you know, th- th- this one was just uh, a really rough one. Rough one to read. Yeah. It, yeah. And um, I'm I'm getting to an age where I'm seeing too many people dying who are younger than me, and that's kind of scary. Uh, so uh, the the two other pieces of news that we've got are both female-centric, but in very different areas. I want to start with the fluffy one first, because it's, it's just so cool and bizarre. Uh, and I we just saw this today. So country legend Rita McIntyre uh, is uh, apparently she's got a new side gig going on. Uh, she's going to be playing Colonel Sanders in uh, commercials starting the week of January 28th, including in with a beard, I might add. Wow. Yeah. So uh, so we've gender bent a character, right? I mean, that that's essentially what's going on. Actually, and the truth is, Sanders was a real person. But, uh, you know, now, now, of course, he's deceased. And so... Um, so the, the company uses him as sort of a mascot character, so you know anybody can play him. But the fact that he's being played by a woman for the first time is pretty neat, and uh, and and evidently her um, her outfit's going to be a little more sparkly, give it more of a, like a country uh, country music kind of flair to it. It's kind of cool, and you know, it's like on the one hand they're they're gender bending this character, but they're kind of doing it um, with this intention of like how do i want to say this like reba mcintyre is kind of like this wholesome um representation of you know down home america and down home american cooking i guess that that kfc is supposed to represent so that they they went to a woman for that like that that's just kind of really cool yeah and so uh, i'm you know i i 
I'm not a fan of commercials, but I am kind of looking forward to, to checking out, uh, you know, how they, how they play this, whether it's sort of wink, wink, you know, yeah, I'm wearing a beard, but it's a fake kind of thing. Or if they play it straight, um, you know, that, that, that I'm really the Colonel, you know, even, even though she's got, you know, a higher voice and, you know, it looks, <laughs> looks rather different. Uh, so, so that'll be, that'll be interesting. But, but again, you know, we're seeing another, um, we're seeing another character being gender swapped and, uh, another piece of, uh, white male cis culture being changed. Yeah, you hear that yeah. MRAs. <laughs> <laughs> you you try to edit that down and then see what you get. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a drumstick, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe a tiny little chicken wing bone or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so the, now the other piece of news that we've got, which is also female centric, but is also uh, disturbing, I think, is. Uh, another legend uh catherine deneuve uh well-known uh french actress uh she denounced the me too movement in a way that was pretty tone deaf uh through an article in uh, the new york times on uh, january 9th uh it, it wasn't just her it was other people and uh basically what they were saying was that a lot of, they they were discounting a lot of the me too movement what they were what they were trying to do and i think they did it in a very ham-handed ham-fisted sort of way is they were attempting to to make a distinction between out and out rape versus somebody who was uh you know maybe making bad comments or pinched a bottom or something like that i understand their motivation i still disagree with it but i understand their motivation I understand it too, but part of the problem is, is that like, e even if it's a clumsy attempt to ask for a date, or if it's, you know, I don't know, just, just patting somebody on the bottom or whatever, you know, things that we consider uh, lesser um, on the spectrum of transgressions a man can commit against a woman, still are entitled to talk about it and we still need to talk about it because that's how these social boundaries are drawn. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I think that everybody who's, uh, said me too, everybody who's used the hashtag or even read it or thought about it is well aware of the difference between somebody getting, getting raped, such as, uh, Rose McGowan, uh, with, uh, Harvey Weinstein uh versus uh versus somebody who was uh you know where there's uh sexual remarks are made or uh you know former president uh george bush the the elder uh where he's you know sort of you know putting his hand on somebody's butt while he's taking a picture with them uh you know there there is absolutely a qualitative difference between them nobody's nobody's saying that these are the same because they're not well, but, and, and the yeah. the thing that I really take exception to is that uh, part of uh, what the letter uh, Catherine Deneuve signed says is that this somehow compromises free speech. Yeah, and it, it doesn't. Well, yeah, and and also that you know the that the sort of the the mating dance between men and women kind of is getting compromised. Um, first off, most of these things happened at work. Or at least, or you know, uh, the list that we've got, the sexual harassment list that we've got, the vast majority of those people, it was a work situation where this happened. Uh, so these are not dates. 
This is not right. asking out. And yeah, you know something? You know why HR has the rules that they do? One of the biggest rules that human resources has that people aren't supposed to be dating each other if they're not at the same level. And the truth is, HR kind of doesn't want anybody to be dating because they know that most relationships don't work out. Sorry, sorry, romance lovers, but it's true. Most relationships don't work out. So that if you're dating somebody, even if they're exactly the same as you, they're not in a position of power. So you're not going to lose your job and it's completely consensual and it's loving and wonderful, but it doesn't work out. One of you is probably going to leave and that costs them money. Or, or even if you don't leave, like just all of the awkwardness and like the pot shots and the things, you know, that, that just get the, the, the unnecessary drama that gets drawn into it. I mean, you know, and it's my alma mater and I won't say what department, but, you know, one of the departments that I was taking classes in and keep in mind, I had two majors and a minor, so it could have been anywhere. Um, <laughs> it was the gym class, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, there was kind of, um, you know... My class, my instructor was still experiencing some some kind of um, bumpy kind of stuff, I'll say, because uh, she was married to another instructor, and it didn't end well. Mm -hmm. And so that was causing a ripple effect throughout the department. And it kind of really didn't touch us too much at the student level, but I think maybe it did, from what I understand, the cohorts ahead of me. Mm. And I'm sure that it made for some interesting faculty meeting. No doubt. And, and you know, I, I have a little story to tell you once you're done, but yeah. But on the other hand, though, like where I go to school right now, there are three married couples and, you know, within the faculty that I am aware of, um, maybe four, and it seems to be working out quite well. So, you know, different rules, different places. This is the kind of thing that happens a lot in academia, especially, um, you know, if, if you're doing the job search and both of you are academics, one of you lands a job. And so sometimes one of the caveats is, can you find a position for my spouse as well? That happens a lot. That that's completely understandable, you know, particularly if you're moving to the other, other side of the country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, so in high school, the um, the French teacher was um, one of the French teachers uh, was uh, married to a um, one of the math teachers, and um, he uh, the, like the year after I graduated, he uh, had an affair with the school nurse in the junior high, and. Uh, and he and his wife divorced, and they were all still working within the school system, at least a few years after I graduated. That must wow. have been fun and real, real awkward at them, those faculty meetings. Yeah, and, you know, kind of the point is, and, you know, you, you mentioned HR, so kind of what I was thinking there is that, you know, w with the couples with which that it seems to be, meeting that I can observe right now, even if it wasn't succeeding, we wouldn't know about it because they do keep it professional at work. They don't act like married people at work. Mm -hmm. So when I go to one professor's class and then I go to like maybe their spouse's class or whatever, um, you know, like, except for like the most passing reference, um, you wouldn't even necessarily be aware that they were married. To so they do a pretty good job of keeping home life at home and work life out of work. But those HR rules kind of exist in other places 
because a lot of times you can't be able to do that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, you know, and, and, and also with, with, you know, Deneuve and the others where they're, they're saying, you know, the, the, the mating dance and whatnot. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm at work, I kind of work. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. <laughs> and, and, you know, we even talked about on the last show that mating dance exists because of weird social constructions we have to basically perpetuate systemic misogyny. We, You know, women historically haven't had the agency to say yes, along with the agency to say no. So we have these weird little mating dances that happen, and they're kind of going out of style. They're, they're on their way out in terms of being in favor, but a lot of society hasn't caught up with that idea yet. Yeah, and <sighs> one of these days. <laughs> Another thing that I'm seeing in a lot of articles, too, is this idea that people can't tell the difference um, a, a really bad attempt to ask for a date or, uh, you know, cross signals and a physical sexual assault. And I, I think that um, there is actually no evidence out there that any such thing has actually happened in the of the Me Too yeah, I, um, I, uh, more often than not, that's, uh, people are going to know the difference. Yeah, so that, that's just pearl clutching. That's not anything that. Yeah, I, I, I hate to break it to the, to these folks, but when, um, when Steven Seagal, for example, says to a, a potential co-star, I need for you to strip, uh, you know, during the during the auditioning process, so I can see if you're you're good for the role, and it's not a nude scene. That's not the little mating dance. When no. uh, Louis C.K. is hanging out with his uh, with female uh, um, comedian buddies, and he uh, he uh, takes off his pants, that's not the mating dance either. When I was working in a salon and I pulled the cape off my client and, and his pants were unzipped and his junk was hanging out, that wasn't the mating dance. Exactly. The, um, the, the male paralegal who used to uh, push up against uh, the female lawyers and the secretaries and the paralegals uh, when we were using the photocopier in a very narrow aisle, that wasn't the mating dance either. And I kind of have a hard time feeling sympathy for these men who claim that, well, we can't do anything anymore. We can't say anything anymore. We can't even ask a woman out. We can't talk to her. You know what? Yes, you can. If you ask me out and I say no, that's not the beginning of a negotiation. The discussion is over, just as if you would have said no. That's all you need to know going in and if you know that fact if you memorize it and if you live by it it will change your life <laughs> exactly you know it's funny because uh like for work i'm i'm you know i i read a bunch of books and, uh, and also my my boss does and i end up interpreting them with him and one of them recently was on negotiations and it was yeah and no is the opening of the negotiations like yeah that's perfect for business it's not for for human relationships though 
Yeah. So, and, and, and I think that men, well, I mean, and I think women too, but just because of, you know, internalized and systemic misogyny, there, there's this idea that everything is transactional. Yeah. It's, yeah, not everything's up for negotiation. Uh, and yeah, that's not. <laughs> on that happy note on that note because <laughs> we're because we've we've done a, a good two hours um, here's cold play no. <laughs> <laughs> we we were joking about that before that uh you know that that you'd have these uh you know like like these local local uh radio stations and they would you know they would report on some horrible disaster you know there are 260 dead and now there's now here's Coldplay. So- <laughs> So, so that that's not meant like to be derogatory against Coldplay. I actually like quite a couple. I don't know about quite a few songs, but th- there's there's a few of their songs that I actually like quite a bit. But it was just kind of like when I made this joke, Coldplay was the first thing that popped into my head, and now it's just there for me anytime I need it. <laughs> so, uh, so, so now we'll um. So, well, we'll do a nice article. We'll do we'll do a nice segment on Coldplay sometime soon. I I, I, I promise you, we apologize to you profusely, profusely. Uh, so so thank you so much for listening. This has been um you know that this has been a, an interesting discussion and very you know we, we yeah we've gone up got off on some some sort of wacky tangents, but I hope it's been entertaining and you know at least at least informative if nothing else. Yeah yeah me too and and. Thank you on behalf of Janet and myself and Coldplay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, so next time uh, we'll uh, which will be February. Um, I don't know if it, you know if we're still talking about sexual harassment. We can talk about it in context with Valentine's Day. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'm sure there may be uh, some more developments with the X-Files to talk about, and we'll have other uh, fandom-y goodness for you as it emerges throughout the month. Definitely. Uh, Star Trek Discovery. I think Star Trek Discovery will be ending its uh, its first season episodes within February, won't it? Yeah, and, and I think the X-Files will be over by then as well. So, But I think in March, though, I think that's when The Handmaid's Tale back so we we can Woo-hoo. definitely if it's not back by the time we start recording we can definitely get giddy with anticipation about the the misogynistic dystopia that we're <laughs> headed for co-dystopia awesome all right <laughs> and um and hopefully by then i will have some beta readers <laughs> so um so until then um thank you so much for listening and uh, go patriots um, okay, I don't do the sports ball. <laughs> I know. Uh, so just just wish, wish me luck on, on finishing my proposal and, and successfully de- defending it. Yeah, best of luck to you and because um, I know you're gonna you're gonna crush it. Well, I hope so. If it doesn't I, crush if it doesn't crush me first. I have every faith in you. <laughs> well, thank you. All right, y'all, peace out and uh, we'll, we'll come at you next month. Okay, and uh, live short and suffer according to the mirror universe. (laughs) Bye. Thanks, bye-bye. Music provided by Invocation Array. Send mail to hosts at semanticshenanigans.com. Follow us on Twitter at Two Shenanigans. That's the number, not the word. Two Shenanigans. On Facebook, you can find us at Semantic Shenanigans. Subscribe to our YouTube channel 
semantic shenanigans. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time right here on Semantic Shenanigans. <laughs>